I'm going to share with you today uh, on the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, the first part will be very theological. Uh, I'll tell you why in a short while. And the second half or second 40% will be more practical. Uh, so if you are the sleeping type, uh, you are allowed to sleep. <laughs> and I thought of bringing a bell to wake you up by the time I reached the practical part because it's going to be very theological because if you look at the feeding of the 5,000, we can approach it in a very mundane way, very simple way, and the usual way. But uh, I'm going to approach it in a different way so uh, to add a different slant to it. And so uh, if you can't understand what I'm saying, well, it's okay. It's like Paul, you know. Paul, in the, the first half of every epistle, he, he, he does it doctrinally, right? And then the second half, when he does the practice. Okay, uh, Matthew 14, verse 3 to 21. All right, so you should bring a Bible, and whatever form the Bible, you should read it. But being so kind and so generous and so considerate, well, here it is. But next time, bring a Bible, huh? because it's always good to have a printed Bible with you. The more we don't bring, the more we find that the Bible is irrelevant and biblical illiteracy is really on the increase today, especially in, in, among the next generation. So Matthew 14, verse 3 to 21. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, by the name of Salome, danced for the guests in a very historically well-known dance called the Dance of the Seven Veils, and pleased Herod so much that he promised an oath, that's a stupid statement, to give her whatever she asked. And it's amazing that if the king asks you, tell me what you want, you could have asked for half the kingdom. But prompted by her mother, it is very demonic, she said, give me here the head of John the Baptist. That's all she asked, you know. And the king was distressed, because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and John the Baptist was beheaded in the prison and his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who then carried it to her mother. How demonic can it be? John's disciples now come and took his body, buried it, and they went on and told Jesus. And this is very important. What was Jesus' response? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, horror priest to moan because John was his first cousin, you see. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. As evening approached, the disciples now came to him and said, this is a remote place. One version says, 
the wilderness, an arid place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages, buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? How do we give to feed 5,000 men plus children and women, easily 15,000 people? We have only here five loaves of bread and two fish. The boy was not, rec- was not mentioned, but in other versions, they got it for a little boy who offered his lunch or his dinner. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, in some version, in fifties and in hundreds. It's a formation. Taking the five loaves and two fishes, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces, 12 basket is, represents the 12 tribes of Israel because the whole audience were all Jewish people, uh, all Jewish people that were left over. The number of those who ate was 5,000 men besides men and women. There was another healing, sorry, another breaking of the, 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 the bread, rather the, the multiplication of bread to 4,000 uh, later on, but that is to the Gentiles. So whatever Jesus did, in the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 encompasses both Jews here and later on in another place, the 4,000 Gentiles. What's the significance? So I'm going to share under two broad headings. First of all, what are the theological connotations of the feeding of the 5,000? And then I will then begin to share with you the practical applications of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, follow me, eh? follow me, hear me out. In order to share with you the theological connotations, let me refer you to two other passages of Scripture. The first one is in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to verse 6. In the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi prophesied at the end of the end of his prophecy, because after that, 400 years of silence, called the intertestamental period, when no prophet came, and then John came, and John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. No wonder people flocked to hear John. Why? Because 400 years, no prophet, ma. And suddenly a prophet appeared, of course, who don't want to hear, right? So everybody flocked to John because John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But what did Malachi prophesy at the end of the Old Testament before 400 years of silence, he said this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents or the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else if this prophet don't come, a curse will come upon the land. But praise the Lord, this prophet Elijah came and therefore salvation came. Who is this prophet Elijah? Can I just highlight to you that according to the prophet Malachi, this prophet Elijah is sent to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Every time the term great and dreadful day of the Lord, it always refers to the 
second coming, never the first coming. Why? Because when Jesus came the first time, he was not grateful, he was not, he just came as a baby. Who then is this prophet Elijah? Conventional thinking, and it's true, that it refers to John the Baptist. And when the prophet Malachi sees and prophesies, I showed you the diagram before, he doesn't differentiate, he cannot differentiate. Actually, there could be two Elijahs. Matthew 17, verse 10 to 13 is the other reference I give to you. And this is after Matthew the 14, after John was beheaded. We, uh, we just read just now. John was beheaded, right? After the dance of the seven veils. That's in Matthew 14. Now, Matthew is chronological, huh? all right? Unlike Isaiah, where it is not chronological here, everywhere one. Huh? But Matthew is chronological. So in Matthew 17, after John, the, when Baptist was beheaded, strange. Hear what Jesus said. The disciples asked him, after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, what then do the teachers of the law say why then that Elijah must come first? Clearly referring to Malachi chapter 4. Then Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. The disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. Elijah has already come. And they did what they want to do to him as they wish. But notice what Jesus says here. Elijah comes and will restore all things. Future, right? Comes present tense, right? Elijah has already come. So has Elijah come or not come more? <laughs> he has already come and he will come and he will restore. The first Elijah clearly refers to John the Baptist. Clearly, there are two Elijahs. Who is the second Elijah that will come, already come, still alive, not dead? John the Baptist, the first Elijah, is dead. And this second Elijah will now come to restore all things. John the Baptist never came to restore anything. He just came as a forerunner. Clearly, the second Elijah prophesied by Malachi fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is no, none other than Jesus himself. So Jesus now comes and he will restore all things as the El Yah. El, Elijah, is a compound word, two words, El Yah, God Yahweh. So Jesus is God and Yahweh. That's why he is called Elijah. So here we see that Jesus Christ now comes to restore all things as the Messiah. As the Messiah. And this is very important now. You follow me. When John the Baptist died and was beheaded, clearly there were two transitions. The first transition is the end of the prophetic era. The prophetic era started by Elijah, 
the kings, then Elijah started the school of prophets. So it started with Elijah, it ends with Elijah. John the Baptist, ma. So when John the Baptist passed away, it is the end of the Old Testament prophetic era. But it marks the beginning of Jesus Christ now as the Messiah. Now, after John the Baptist was beheaded and is taken off the stage, Jesus now comes in and takes center stage. The best man has finished his routine. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, comes out and now takes the bride. It is like a wedding ceremony. You all know, and many of us, most of us, if all of us, have all been to wedding ceremonies or dinners where initially the best man will come and tell jokes about the bridegroom, right? Oh, I know this guy, you know, the, all, the, all the things like that. We all may laugh, 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 laugh. Huh? And then after that, he introduces the bridegroom. Nobody remembers who the best man is. Do you remember who the best man is? We remember who? We remember the bridegroom. We remember the bride. Nobody remembers the best man one, no. That's why John says, I must decrease and he increase. Now, the best man has taken off the stage. Jesus now comes to the center stage. Now is the time. After John the Baptist has taken off the stage, Jesus now comes to center stage. And the first thing he does is feeding of the 5,000. Pastor is coincidental. Nothing happens by accident. The first creation, the first miracle that Jesus did after John the Baptist was beheaded, taken off the center stage, and now the bridegroom comes into the forefront, he does the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. Why? It carries with it several very important, significant theological and spiritual connotations. Hear me now. Uh. I know what I'm talking about because when I was in Bible school in Vancouver, in Regent College, I did a summer course with Professor Richard T. Franz. He, okay, don't, don't worry about this yet. Huh? He was a professor of New Testament in Oxford he was also the principal of Wycliffe College, Oxford. So very well-known, eminent uh, uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, and he has written an entire commentary on Mark. So I, I, I went under him, and you know, at the end of the course, you have to do a paper one, you know. So I chose to do a paper on the feeding of the 5,000, because the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. That's how important it is. So I began to do a research on the paper, and, uh, well, I got an A for it. Huh? <laughs> if I get an A from a person at Oxford, so I, I know what I'm talking about. So this is my summary of the theological implications of the feeding of the 5,000. There are three. Actually, there are four. I'll give you three first. The firstly, it is messianic. For the first time now, Jesus comes out of the center stage and de 
declare publicly that he is the Messiah. Because the best man is gone, ma. The bridegroom now comes out and notice, and I repeat, it is to a Jewish audience. Secondly, there is a divine connotation. Publicly, Jesus now says, I am God. Why? Because it's a creative miracle. So far, up to that point in time, it is about healing the sick, all this kind of thing. Huh? Well, in a sense, other gods can do that also. Huh? But only God can create. And only God can walk on water. Immediately after this, he walked on water. Why? He comes out and declares his divinity. The third implication is what I call an eschatological implication, where whatever transpires at the feeding of the 5,000 is a point to the future, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So these are the three theological significance, and let me expound it and expand on it together, showing to you from Scripture why this is actually believable. Okay? It has messianic connotations. It has divine connotations. It has eschatological connotations. All right? Now, in order to explain to you all this, let me now refer you back to Matthew chapter 11, the time when John the Baptist was languishing in prison and being human, he had doubts. And he asked this very pertinent question, are you Jesus, through a messenger, the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? Now, who is the one? The Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Why is it that I'm languishing in prison and, and, and you don't care? Why is it? So being human, and probably he was suffering, he asked this question. What was Jesus' reply? Jesus replied this. Look at this reply. Jesus replied in Matthew 11, verse 4 to 6. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. Very specific. Huh? Every one of this is intentional. It's not, oh, I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Every one of these statements, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Reference Luke chapter 4. When Jesus Christ came into the synagogue, he said they oppressed the poor. In other words, he's expanding his whole portfolio as a Messiah. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble again. And John knew that. John understood. That's why he could die. I want to believe he died without any offense. It's a message that Jesus, and I want to believe that the, Holy, the Spirit of God would tell John this. No, you're not going to die in vain. This is not a physical Messiah. Now, why, why did Jesus say this? Why? 
blind receive sight, lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised. Why? Because in Jewish Talmud and in the conservative Orthodox Judaism, there are certain criteria that they have for someone to be recognized as the Messiah, and Julius Subi mentioned that. Those of you who came for Julius Subi's seminar, he mentioned that. And it's true. So what are these criteria? There are actually seven, among others, must be more. The criteria for anyone to be labeled and given the credential as a Messiah, in a Jewish mind, he must heal the blind. He must give a deaf a voice, I mean, a, 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 a hearing. He must be able to heal the lepers of their skin condition. Because there's so many leprosy, it's impossible to heal. If a person heals the leper, wow, he is a messianic a candidate. He must make the lame walk. He must raise the dead. What? How many must people can raise the dead? Yes. You want to be a Messiah? Resurrection of the dead. He must be able to care for the poor. And one more. The Messiah will be revealed in the wilderness. And this is where the feeding of the 5,000 comes in. That's why when Jesus told John the Baptist, tell John, do one, two, three, four, five. John knew. No more doubts. This is the Messiah. Where is a prophecy that the Messiah must be revealed in the wilderness? It's in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to verse 5. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, it says, But then I will win her back once again, talking to Israel. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. In other words, the revelation of the Messiah to Israel, her, will be in the desert. I will lead the 5,000 Jews, which is a representation of Israel, into the desert. I will return her vineyards to her, transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Why? Because the Messiah brings peace, prosperity to the nation. She will give herself to me, and she did long ago when she was young, and I freed her from the captivity in Egypt. So that the Messiah will also bring deliverance at that time from Egypt, this time possibly from the Roman oppression. So the people understood that. Why? Because they were all Jews. The rabbis were there. So when they saw what happened in the wilderness, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, 15 comes to their mind. The other reference is Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. Talking about John the Baptist, he says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. So when John the Baptist came into the desert, it is to proclaim, and the revelation of Messiah will be in the desert. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Where? In the wilderness. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here, 5,000. So the people in the arid wilderness begin to understand and see 
this is the Messiah. But the best reference to this is by Moses. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, in the wilderness said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Before Moses passed away, before Moses was called home, he made this declaration that after me, a prophet will now come from among you. And for many, many years, the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish teaching and Orthodox Judaism looking forward to this, the prophet, who is he? But it will be revealed in the desert, you see, in the wilderness. And so when they saw Jesus doing all of those things, and in the desert, he fed the 5,000, they know that possibly that this is the Messiah. How do I know? John chapter 6. John is the only gospel that tells us what happens after the feeding of the 5,000, after the 5,000 people or 15,000 have gone home, Jesus now took the disciples and explained to them a little bit more about the feeding of the 5,000. You go and read John chapter 6. And this is what happens in John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, Surely, this is the prophet. Which prophet? The prophet that Moses had prophesied. Why? Because they were Jewish. They understood. Remember, the rabbis are there. So they understood. Surely, this is the prophet that Moses had prophesied many, many years ago. Surely, this is the one. He raised the dead. He healed the, poor, he healed the sick. This is it. This is it. He met all the criteria who is to come into the world. And, but Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king, the Messiah is the king, huh? he withdrew in the mountain. Why? Because this, they got it wrong. What Jesus Christ, as he declared his messiahship, his kingship in the desert, immediately after John the Baptist was beheaded, is a, his messianic connotation, it has divine connotation. It has eschatological connotation. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom which is spiritual, not military or political. And we all know that. Uh, we all know that. Now, let me, let me urge it for you so that you understand why is it, it is important for us to understand this. It is the eschatological connotation. Because in John chapter 6, when Jesus expounded it more to the disciples, notice, not to the crowds. Why? Because the crowds don't understand. The crowds only eat. They feed. But they don't understand. So he talked to the disciples. He said, I am the bread of life. I multiplied the bread to the... That's physical. 
And one of the proofs that a crowd could not understand was because they kept chasing after Jesus to feed them. But Jesus says, no. That's why he withdrew. But to the disciples and to all of you today, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the government will be upon my shoulders. And the government and the kingdom that I come to inaugurate is a spiritual, powerful, authoritative government. And that's exactly what Pastor Lee Chiu said two weeks ago when we had our prayer altar, this is our prayer altar, to prepare the people to Kuching. Every time you and I go to places like that or go up to our workplace or go up to our families, it is the kingdom of God it is when the kingdom of God comes, light comes, darkness got to go. And it's this kingdom that Jesus Christ comes to inaugurate and the very fact that it is eschatological, meaning that it, was, it did not end with Jesus on planet earth. He died, he rose again, and every time we take communion, we are expecting that Jesus Christ will return and he can only return because he is alive. Jesus is here today. Last week, please go and hear my message at level at, at um, service three and service four. It's one of the most important messages I preach because of the passage. I ask a very pertinent question. If you and I want to live a victorious life, and stay victorious, a, f a few fundamental questions you have to grapple with and be convicted about. Number one, how real is Jesus Christ to you? You think, la? Is Jesus Christ only real on a Sunday? And then Monday to Saturday, he doesn't exist. You want to live a victorious Christian life? I told the crowd, Jesus Christ must be as real as the person sitting next to you right now. That's it. The second pertinent question I ask is this. How real is eternal life to you? Upon that conviction, depends on how you live your life, you see. Because if eternal life is not real to you, and something that you put on the shelf as a passport to heaven, as a security, from Monday to Saturday, you will live your life anyhow, with no eternity in mind. Two key questions. How real is Jesus to you? Will determine whether you live your life victoriously or be defeated all the time. So don't complain. How you a pastor? How am I defeated all the time? How you are you? Why? Because Jesus is not real to you. Are you a pastor? How come? What do you mean trouble come to God? Eternity is not real to you. So when Jesus instituted and fed the crowd with a manna, 
The people thought that he was going to deliver them out of Roman oppression as Moses delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian oppression. But the manna is the bread of life. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I tell you the truth. He who believes in me has eternal life. Every time we take the communion, we are declaring number one, Jesus died on a cross, his body broken for my sin, the wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus went on to say in John chapter 6, I told you, go back and read John chapter 6. He said something very offensive. Unless you eat my flesh oh, and drink my blood, oh, you cannot have eternal life. But I will raise him up on the last day. Now, in our carnal mind, it's very offensive. How to eat your blood? How to drink, drink your blood and eat your flesh? Oh? That's why John 6.6 6 is one of the saddest verses in the scripture. John chapter 6, verse 66. 666. Many people left. You cannot take it. But clearly, Jesus was referring to the Eucharist. Every time we take the bread that speaks of the body of Jesus, broken for your sin, every time you pass the cup around and you drink that, don't take it lightly. Because Jesus says, every time you eat this, you drink it, you show forth my death, Till I come. And Jesus said this, I will not drink of this cup until I come back again in my kingdom. He will return. But what are you going to do from now until his return? Jesus is not so real. Yeah, he's okay. He's safe. Monday to Saturday, I can conduct my life anyhow I like. Spirituality, ah, leave it to the pastors. Eternity, who cares? Not so. Not so. I want you to think. I really want you to think. Because everything that happens in Scripture has an eternal tag with it. And the moment you and I live our life myopically with only this life, you know something? The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, regretted it. Was he wealthy? Yes. Was he famous? Yes. Was he clever? Yes. A thousand times cleverer than you are. But he said this, everything is meaningless. Because at that time, it was the twilight of his life. He has wasted his opportunity. He started so well, did not end well. I challenge you today, my friend. I challenge you today. Four theological significance of the feeding of the 5,000. And I want to say that Jesus is here today, you see. It carries with it messianic connotations. 
The timing was immaculate. The place was correct. And that significance lives on today. Every time you take the communion, we remember the Lord's death till He comes. Divine connotation, eschatological connotation. One day, you and I will participate with all the tribes, all the tongues, and all the creeds of the world in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew 22, Jesus talks about the banquet. You see, how real is that to you? Thing, huh? Thing, huh? How real is what all of this to you? Jesus Christ, how real he is. Spiritual over the physical. How real is it? Eternity. How real is it? Believe me, my friend, as a doctor, as a pastor, I see death more than any of you. You occasionally want to go to big service, ma. That's my job. Now you can wake up. <laughs> what are the practical applications of the feeding of the 5,000? I've shared with you the theological implications, and it is very applicable because it carries with it depth. And so you have to understand that Jesus Christ is real. Spiritual things are real. Eternity is real. And last week, as I shared with you, because I was dealing on the passage of if you clean your house and you don't occupy it with the things of God, a spirit seven times stronger will come in. Do you believe that? Why do you think many of us live defeated lives? Because we take care, see us, see us, ahaja. But Jesus says this, if you clean your house, which is the house? Your body. Not this house, huh? Your house. It's cleansed. But you don't occupy it with the things of God. But you say, Pastor, I, uh, I don't believe it. Because why? Ever, ever since I am a Christian, I am saved, Holy Spirit lives inside me. It's more powerful, ma. Yes, nothing to do with the salvation. It's having to do with the victorious Christian life. The Holy Spirit lives inside you to seal you. You will never lose your salvation unless you openly deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with your salvation. I'm talking about living a victorious Christian life. You can be saved and you still live a defeated life. No wonder. So many of you are having problems because Jesus said, if you clean your house and you have no time for God, 
You occupy your life with all stupid things in life. Carnal. That will die. That will not last for time. How? In these 40 days of fast and pray, you consecrate yourself to the Lord. You see, believe me, how real is all of these things to you will determine whether you live a victorious Christian life as a disciple of Jesus Christ or you are still saved but you are defeated all the time. Why? Because the devil will wreak havoc in your family. I choose to address the practical applications from a discipleship viewpoint. Why? Because in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus then used it as a master class of discipleship to equip and train the disciples. So there are five principles in this Jesus master class of discipleship. And as I began to write down this application, my mind cannot help but go back to run now. Why? Because it's still fresh in my memory. And I began to see that every one of these five discipleship principles were actually expressed, demonstrated, executed in run now. And I know that all the 175 of you that went, your knowledge and your experience of Jesus and of God rose up very much, many notches. Why? Because it was firsthand. You can come to messages after messages. Believe me, nothing will happen. Until these five principles, masterclass principles of discipleship that was demonstrated in Rana. What are these? Number one, you know, every one of these people are ordinary folks, sir. But you know that their understanding and knowledge of the power and the authority of the kingdom of God uh, lifted sky high because they saw it firsthand. Principle one is the principle of stretching your capacity. It was late. The people are hungry. 15,000 of them. So the disciples came to Jesus. Jesus sent them off. Very practical. But Jesus says, no. You give them something to eat. What? Me? Yes, you. But pastor, how can all? A thousand and one varied reasons, right? Cannot lah, no time lah, you know, no energy lah. I'm so hungry ma. You know what I mean? It's so late ma, cannot see ma, no light ma. We got electricity at that time. You know what I mean? Uh, and also people, uh, how do they, how do I, 15,000, I could eat 12 of us. Thousand and one valid reasons. One, uh. If you don't want to be a disciple, the, the, the devil will give you a, a million reasons. But Jesus says, you do it. And credit to the disciples. They didn't say no. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You want to stretch me? I'm willing. 
and he found a little boy. And God stretched their faith. Do you know what had happened to the 12 disciples at the end of this feeding of 5,000? Wow! God, you are real. Wow! They would always say, we did it. Are you willing to stretch your capacity? Are you willing to come out of your comfort zone? Because this is the kingdom principle of discipleship. If you are not willing, believe me, nothing will happen to you. Many of you come from other churches. You've been jaded. You've been disappointed. Many of you have been serving God in the past when you were younger. You might even have told the Lord, Lord, I go full-time for you. But over the period of time when the cares of family and all the demands of your career has come into your life, where is that vision? And today, especially in this service, most of you have reached the second half of your life. But praise God, you still got the second half, ma. Don't you think so? Praise God, you still have feet to walk, ma. Praise God, you still have appetite to eat, ma. Praise God, you're not at home, ma. What are you doing? What are you doing? Second principle. And the third one is, I put together. You must get involved. And you must get engaged. Why did Jesus, Jesus could very well have said, oh, and everybody is fed, manna come down from heaven again, right? Could he have done it? Of course. He would have called ravens and birds. And they said, no, you do it. The disciples had to arrange 15,000 people in groups of 50. You know how difficult that is or not? No, la, I want to sit with my mother. La, I want to sit with my father. La, my name is not there. La, I, la, I want to be usher. La, I want to be a prayer. Yeah. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah. Those of you who go to Kuching. 700 of us. You know how difficult it is to arrange according to your likes and dislikes? I, I don't want this. I don't want that. I come in so late. I don't Look, please. La. But these are 15,000 people, you know. You arrange them. Incidentally, when you arrange the people in 50 and 100, it's a military connotation. That is why the people at the... the, the it is military state. It's fifth in divisions. Man. But you must get engaged. They had to distribute it. They had to do it. Listen. You know the disciples had to be ushers. They had to be hosts. They had to be traffic controllers, you know that? They had to be hospital, hospitality people. The message of smile, okay, you know what I mean? And also they had to be cleaners. They clean up everything, throw baskets full. Ma. But do you know something? They're prepared to serve. As they serve, 
the fourth principle kicks in. The principle of divine revelation. You will never, never understand what it is like in discipleship, but you think you know, but you don't know. You think only you know, because there's so much more that Jesus wants to reveal to you. But I don't know why that he always reveals it to the, convict, to the committed. If you're not committed, what for tell you? If you're not committed to him, what for he reveal to you who he is? What for? Again and again and again. The class, the master class of discipleship in Jesus' class is reserved for the committed. Never for the comfortable. Never for the laissez-faire. Never for those who take who are indifferent. Never, never, never. Always for the committed. As the disciples begin to sh- share, break the bread, what they saw was that miracle happening in front of them. They understood. The crowds didn't know. The crowds only ate. They probably thought that, wow, so good, uh, so well organized the SIB, uh, they have got 15,000 uh, amount of food all stored for me, uh, not true, no. Incidentally, uh, some of the food you eat there, all multiplied by the lot one. Uh. Bring a leg. Divine revelation. It was the same. For the other creative miracle, when Jesus turned water into wine, who knew? You tell me who knew. Servants. The master of the party didn't know where the wine came from. The guests didn't know who knew. The servants. Why? Because the servants was the one who saw it. It's same for you. If you are contented with the level of spirituality, if you are very happy with where you are now, praise the Lord. But can I encourage you? Even in these 40 days of fast and prayer, you know, you know so much revelations that the Lord gave to Pastor Lee Chu and myself. I read a passage of scripture. Wow! The Spirit of God just tutors me, tells me things. And I told you there are three issues that I wanted to know from God in these 40 days. Number one, myself. I want to grow deeper with God. I want to, I hunger after God. I want, I want to draw close to the Lord. I want to know Him more. Because it's a delight to be in the presence of God, right? It is a delight to be in the presence of God, okay? Amen. Secondly, so my family. No family is a perfect one, no? So there are issues in my family that Pastor Lee Chiu and I pound heaven doors for. It is 40 days. I say, God, have mercy. Thirdly, it's my succession. If I don't seek God, you think God will tell me? And if I do it wrong, 
Wow. Three things. What about you? Is there anything important in your life? Or there's nothing so important? Huh? Seek God. As you begin to do that, God will begin to reveal to you, and He has promised to do that. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah 12, 29 verse 12, you will be found by me. You read the Psalms of David. I seek you, O Lord. And God was never far away. Can I have the worship team up? The first, fifth principle. I forgot one key player in the feeling of fire. Who is it? Little boy. Little boy. Not mentioned in Matthew, but a little boy. You know, when the disciples saw the little boy, incidentally, uh, as I was coming this morning, a revelation came to me. Who are the parents of this little boy? Surely the little boy didn't come alone, right? In a desert, past his bedtime probably. Parents. The parents are so godly, you know. He probably, the little boy, I, I, I'm just paraphrasing. Huh? Dad, mom, they're looking for food. I got five loaves, two fish. Shall I give it to God, to Jesus? The parents say, son, give it. Give it, son. Give it to the Lord. The little boy came because the parents encouraged them in the things of God. And Jesus gave thanks. The first person he gives thanks for is this wonderful family that honors the Lord. And you can be 110% sure that this family will never lack anything in their entire life. Total surrender. If you surrender your life to God, Your talents, your time, your treasure, your temple, the house of God, and your torso, which is the body, five things. You will never be shortchanged. Believe me. So I end with this. The greater the commitment, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the anointing and also the greater the blessing God gives to you and through you is a kingdom principle if you are not committed if you are not willing to sacrifice your spirituality will remain the same and God can never use you to be a blessing, a 
greater blessing than you can be today. Believe me. I want to close with this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same. Many thousands of years ago, He demonstrated His divinity, revealed His messiahship, said and declared that I am the bread of life, and if you take of me, you will have eternal life. And every time we take of the communion, we remember why He's here. He is alive. And we look forward to His return one day. I will not drink of this cup and eat of this bread until I come back in my kingdom. The kingdom of God is inside you. The kingdom of God is inside you. What are you doing about it? Surrender to the Lord. Surrender to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, hallelujah. If you don't have to go, please don't go. You have to go, please go. Quietly. I want to encourage you. The Lord is a good God. Understand? We sang it just now, right? Oh, He's good. Oh, He's so, so, so good. And it's true. He's a good God. But it demands something from us. And none of you are so old that you cannot do something for God. The fact that you are here today shows that it's still a long way, many more years ahead of you. Surrender to the Lord Will you do that? So I'm going to open the altar In a short while For two categories of people Let's try three categories First category For those of you Who have not yet received Jesus Christ As your Lord and your Saviour On the strength Of what I have shared to you Through the authority of Jesus And the power of the Holy Spirit Today You say Lord I want to make a decision You come to my left Could be one Could be two Could be three I don't know but you walk straight out. It will please your family. It will please whoever brought you, your friend. Because today you decide that the same Jesus who multiplied the bread and the, and the fish is the creator of the universe. He died for you. And today you want to accept Him into your heart as your Lord and your Savior. You go to my left. The second group of people is for those of you with issues in your life. If the same God who can create, recreate, the one who healed the sick, make blind eyes see, heal the deaf, make the lame walk, raise the dead. He's the same yesterday He's the same today He's here today He can do the same for you Understand Jesus' messiahship and divinity Didn't end there 
didn't end when he left the earth. It continues today. So I want to pray for any one of you with issues, family, health, whatever it is. We always do that. Why? Because we believe in it. Listen, you know, last week we prayed for Je- Jennifer is here. Isn't it amazing? So good, Jennifer, to see you. You know, he, she was the first in that list of those who were sick. Remember, she had dengue and she was in CCU. It affected her liver, everything. Her blood platelets went down to 17,000. She was in CCU, you know. And today she's here. Isn't it amazing? Come on, let's go off that offering. The whole church prayed for you and it's so good to see you. What I'm trying to say to you is it works. There's nothing that God cannot do. Over the altar. Second category. The third category is for those of you who want to go further with God. You want to say to God, God, use me. I want to be the like, little boy, nameless, but his name is written in heaven because I give to the Lord, not money, uh, yourself. You want to say to God, Lord, I want to use my remaining days loving you, serving you. I don't know how, I don't know what, but I'm willing anyway. I'm yielding it to you. You come. And I know God is speaking to some of you today. You might have come from a previous church and you are totally devastated, totally disappointed, cheesed off. Move on. Today, by coming out, you see, Lord, I want to serve again. I want to make myself useful for the kingdom of God again. I don't know who you are. But this is what the Lord prompted me to say, you see. You come. And I want to believe even as you begin to do that, the Lord will begin to open the door for you and He will reveal to you more and more of Himself. Amen? Three categories, salvation, needs, those who want to go further and deeper to commit yourself to the Lord. Let's all stand. The second song, the altar is open. Treat this time seriously, please. Treat this time so seriously. And I want to believe that even as you respond to one of these three altar calls, the Lord will be there for you. He will begin to begin to work miracles because He will then begin to demonstrate His Messiahship and His divinity because you invited Him into your life. He will never do it if you don't want Him. But because you invited Him into your situation, into your life he can now demonstrate his divinity his messiahship the anointed one that's all there is in your life because you opened the door for him in your family in your health in your ambition in your future hallelujah Jesus is here God is in the house Thank you Jesus Thank you Lord
upon the name of the Lord, friend. My friend, call upon the name of the Lord. He's not far away from you. He's only hearing distance, calling distance from you. You have to call upon His name. Amen. Whoa. Hallelujah. Whoa. I will call upon Your name and keep my eyes above the wave. Hallelujah. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace. I am yours. Oh, hallelujah. Worship the Lord with me. Worship the Lord with me. The Lord is here. Jesus is here. Amen. Worship Him. Worship Him. Extol Him. Exalt the name of the Lord. Amen. Extol Him. Oh, Ramanda Trust is without borders. Hallelujah. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet who ever wandered, and my faith will be restored. The Lord will never, never, never shortchange you, my As real as a person standing next to you, he is real. 
and He wants to come into your life, will you honor Him? Will you invite Him to come in? But treat Him nicely, huh? Don't take it for granted, huh? Bring Him into your life, my friend. When Obed Edom put the ark of the covenant in his house, he hosted God. It's very frightening, you know. You cannot lie. You'll be spied down, right? God is in the house, man. You cannot cheat. You cannot do anything, man. Three months he hosted God in his house. And you know something? God was the perfect guest. He blessed back Obed Edom. You invite Jesus into your house. Treat him well. Treat him good. Honor him. And believe me. There will be healing in your home. There will be restoration of your fortunes. There will be healing of your health. Every disease, every delinquent children, salvation will come to your household. I don't know what else. Because when light comes, darkness got to go. Will you do that now? Will you invite Jesus into your situation in your home before we close? I'll give you a minute or two. Every one of you, Every one of you, would you invite the Lord into your house, into your home? I'm going to read Isaiah 43 The first two verses Three verses As I close And this passage of scripture Means a lot to me Because this is a precious scripture The Lord gave to me When I went full time In 1999 And I still hold on to this And now this is what the Lord says He who created you O Jacob Put your name there. O Mary, O John, O Greg, I don't know. He who created you and he who formed you, O Israel. He's in a process of forming you. More and more to be like Jesus in the whole journey of discipleship. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid, my child. Don't be afraid. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. He knows who you are, my friend. When you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. They will not overwhelm you. Another version says, 
you will not drown that's why oceans they will not sweep over you my friend they will not why because god guarantees it and when you walk through the fire you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze why because god sealed it signed it i am the lord and i have spoken trust him trust him Let's all stretch our hands to the Lord as we close. We do that. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the word. Thank you for the eternal word of God that feeds us, that keeps us alive, keeps us passionate, gives us the strength. And the Holy Spirit inside of us reveals to us all truth. And the truth will set us free. So that we are no more under bondage No more under the ikatan Of the iblis No more And we fill our lives With the things of God Oh hallelujah Because this house Belongs to you And so Father we bless you this day We want to honour you Love you and live the rest of our days, Father, in the full realization and consciousness of the presence of God, the presence of God the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Son in our lives, so that the strength and the power, the triune God is always with us. I am with you. I am with you. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you this day. May the Lord make His face always to shine upon you and your family and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards every one of you here today and always give you shalom, shalom, the shalom of God will always be there with you. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Now God's people say, Amen. Lift God's clap offering. God bless you.